Are you guys ready for the Word of God today? You ready to dive into God's Word? I am so excited, not only for what I'm sharing today, but kind of the way the Lord led me to share it. Um, today, I'll, I won't tell you my title yet. I'm just going to tell you that I want to talk about miracles and the miraculous, which is quite a jump from holiness if you think about it. But the reason God is qualified to do miracles and the miraculous is because God is holy, which is what we talked about last week. So I want you to get your Bible and turn with me to Judges chapter 6. Now, here's how I want to contextualize what, what I'm going to talk about today, because I felt like this was really important for me to, to say. Um. I, I'm gonna, we're going to answer the question. In fact, I'll go ahead and give you my title so you know where I'm coming from. We're going to answer the question today, does God still do miracles? That's my title. I just I couldn't come up with a catchy title when I prayed about it. I just felt like this is, this is the question. This is what we have to answer, and this is the title. So does God still do miracles? Now, I know in some places I know um, that could raise even a concern because maybe you're like, oh man, if he's going to be really dogmatic or really harsh or really over the top. And what I want you to understand is I've been a pastor, you know, senior pastor for 13 years. I've, I want you to understand right now, and, and we're going to go back and answer the question, does God still do miracles? But I want you to understand, I believe God does miracles. Okay, so I'll put my cards on the table. I believe God does miracles, and we're going to talk about that from several different perspectives. In fact, today I'm not only going to use just Scripture, we're going to talk about it from a lot of different angles, um, because this is the way the Lord led me. But I also want you to understand, I want us as a church just to answer this question. This is what I felt from the Holy Spirit. I want us as a church to answer this question and decide for ourselves as a church, do we believe in the miraculous? Do we believe God does miracles? And will we believe him then to do miracles? And so today I'm not going to come over with, oh, God does a miracle. You got to have enough faith. It's nothing like that at all. In fact, as a pastor, I've seen God do miracles. I'll share some of the miracles I've seen God do in my own personal life. But also, um, I have prayed with many people for miracles that we didn't see the way we felt like we should have seen. And so as a pastor, I've had to, if you can imagine, I've had to wrestle this out in a lot of different ways because it's one thing when you see God do a miracle and you can stand up and say, God has done a miracle, praise the Lord. It's another thing, unfortunately, when you do, this, when you do the funeral. And, and so I want you to understand it is not easy to be a pastor and say, I believe in miracles because you do the funerals, Right? You, you, I, I, have, I, I, could, I could talk about times when I haven't seen the miracle I felt like we were praying for. But, I, but, but here's what I need you to understand. Today, I'm not asking you the question, what has been your experience with miracles? Nor am I giving you my answer of what has been my experience with miracles. In other words, here's what I think is important that our culture gets wrong. We start with presuppositions. We start with feelings and ideas and then take those to the Word of God and we thrust on the Word of God our doctrine, our feeling, our theory, and then we pull pieces of Scripture to validate a preconceived notion or presupposition. And what I think is important is when we go to the Word of God, we need to understand, I want a doctrine not built on my experience. I want a doctrine built on God and His Word. Amen. 
And it's important when we go to the Bible that we don't start with what we want it to say. Listen, our culture, our culture is, we're kind of postmodern culture. Like modern culture was we left faith and went to reason. Now postmodern is we leave reason and we go to feeling. And I think when you look at, especially with this being Pride Month, and you look at all the gender dysphoria and gender issues and, and all the agendas that are out there of the LGBTQ and all that, then what you see is a lot of people not living based on reason, but they're living based on feeling. And as believers, I want to make sure that my doctrine is not based on my experience or my feelings. But I want to make sure that my faith, my doctrine, what I believe is based on who. In other words, I'm going to let God define God and not my feelings define God. Does that make sense? And so to me, this is, I want us as a church to say, hey, if we believe, do we believe God still does miracles? And then we're going to go a little bit farther next week. But, but this week, do we believe God still does miracles? And I want you to understand, too, if you're here and you prayed for a miracle and you don't feel like you've seen it or, or you've been through something tragic or harsh or hard or difficult, I want you to understand I have, too. But I want you to understand I can't let that change who God is. Amen. Right? So I have to wrestle this out in light of who God is and in light of my experience, and I can't let my experience tell me who God is. And so to me, I want you to know you're in a safe place. We're just going to talk about it together. All right, and uh, we're going to talk about does still, God still do miracles. So with that, we're going to Judges chapter 6, everybody. Why don't you stand with me? We're going to stand as we read God's Word together. Whatever copy of God's Word you have, digital, or whether you have an analog Bible. In other words, does, does it click or have pages? And uh, if you don't have either of those, that's okay. We're going to put it up on the screen. But as I was praying over the message, I'm not really going to preach a, a message on Gideon. But I want to use something Gideon says because I think it resonates with all of us, right? Does that make sense? And from there, we're going to talk, and we'll use the last scripture. Most of you know Gideon was one. There were 12 judges over Israel. This was before Judges. After Joshua and before Saul, who was the first king of Israel, there were 12 judges, some female, some male. Um, I just like to throw the female in there because that's a whole other doctrinal issue. But anyways, um, God appointed female judges, and some people don't know what to do with that. Anyways. Um, so there were 12 judges, uh, Gideon, I believe is the fifth judge. And in his time frame, what has happened is when, when Joshua brought them into the promised land, you know, Moses, you know, as Moses led them out of Egypt to the promised land, then they're in the wilderness 40 years and then they go into the promised land. What God repeatedly said is when, when I bring you in, you have to drive out the inhabitants of this land. Now, why did God want all the Canaanites to be driven out of the land? Well, if you read it, I'll sum it up categorically two things, their morality and their worship. He didn't want their morals to infect or affect, however you want to put it, God's people. And he didn't want their worship of idols and the way they worshiped to affect God's people. And we know that, that Israel did not drive out all the Canaanites. And we know those two things were a constant struggle in that the morality issue was huge, but also the worship and Canaanites uh, had child sacrifice or did child sacrifice as part of their worship. And that even infiltrated uh, the, the people of God. And so there's a lot of problems here. And that's why when you're reading, especially the book of Judges, it becomes so clear because like they followed the Lord and then they didn't follow the Lord. And then they did evil on the side of the Lord. And then they came back to the Lord and then they did evil on the side of the Lord. And it's like, it's like they just keep going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And so at this time, when we get to Gideon, 
God's people are oppressed by the Midianites, and they would come in and, and pillage and take all their food and trample the crops. And so that is why we're going to find Gideon, who's threshing out wheat in a wine press, which is not where you thresh out wheat, because you need the wind, actually, uh, to do that properly. But he's hiding because the Midianites are so violent, and they're pillaging and all those things. And the angel of the Lord speaks to him, and he's going to become uh, the fifth judge, and he's going to deliver God's people. Verse 11, it says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, and that's not Oprah, by the way, <laughs> which belonged to Joash and Azabezerite, uh, while his son Gideon, if you just want Bible names, there's your one. While his son Gideon threshed wheat in a wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord. Now look at this, because everyone's felt this way. If the Lord is with us, then why has this happened to us? Right? Everybody's felt that way. And I want you to know, if you feel that way, maybe you've been around some well-meaning hyper-Christians that act like they've never felt that way. But can I just be honest, as someone who's followed Jesus almost my entire life and been a pastor for 13 years, there have been many times where I said, if the Lord is with us, why has this happened? You know what I'm saying? Um, <clears throat> let's just keep it real, okay? But look at what he then says. So he says, if the Lord is with us, why has this happened to us? And look at this. And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt, but now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites? And then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the, this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? If the Lord is with us, where are his miracles? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the word of God. Lord, you are in this room. Holy Spirit, speak. And don't let any of us miss what you would want to say to us today. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. You can be seated. Now, if I was in an old school church, I'd say, you may be seated in the presence of the Lord. <clears throat> if the Lord is with us, wherever his miracles. I I'll just be honest with you, and I'm going to share some things, and, and then I'll get to all the stuff. But I've felt this way as a pastor. If the Lord is with us, where are the miracles? Like now, back up, I believe the Lord is with us, but you have to understand, I'm just as human as you are, Right? If I stump my little toe, I feel the same you feel, which is I believe the only reason God gave me a little toe was to find things in the middle of the night. Right? But I feel the way if God is with us, then, then where are his miracles? Now, I believe the Lord is speaking to me, and I want to tell you what I think the Lord is saying as a pastor, as a pastor of Pathway. I wanted to say it this way. I believe God is, is, is currently restoring miracles to the church. But, time out, that's actually theologically incorrect. I believe God is actually restoring the church to miracles. That, I think, is theologically accurate. See, God is unchanging. He doesn't change. We know that from Malachi 3. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, tells us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, 
today and forever. So I think God's a constant in this. But people go up and down and in and out and all around. And that's really the story of Judges. They served the Lord. They turned away from the Lord. Then God would do something, deliver them. You know, they'd turn away from the Lord. They'd fall into the hands of their enemies. God would deliver, raise up a judge, deliver them. They'd turn back to the Lord. They'd have a revival. You see it over and over again. And so was it that God returned to his people? No, the people returned to the Lord. And I think one of the things that I believe we're going to see not only at, at our church, but I believe what we're seeing now is there's this stirring where God or, or the church is being restored or returned back to believing God for the impossible, believing God for miracles. Um, and that is what I long to see and I'm hungry to see. And, 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 and I, want, I want God. I just want to see God, not through my experience, not through my feelings, just see him as he is, right? And that's why we have the word of God. That's why, you know, we have Jesus's perfect theology. And so, so today I want to talk about, I want to talk about miracles. Maybe you felt that way. If God's for us, where is, maybe you're believing for a miracle today. I don't know. I don't know. I know probably in this room there are a number of people probably believing God, praying for things that seem impossible today or are impossible as a church Building our new campus with no debt seems impossible. Trust me, I've done the math. But yet, God is the God of the impossible, and, and we want to work this out together. Now, the question is, are miracles possible? Well, C.S. Lewis, this is a quote from C.S. Lewis that I like. It says, if we admit God, must we admit miracles? Kind of a rhetorical question. He says, indeed, indeed, you have no security against it, that is the bargain. Here's what C.S. Lewis essentially said. If God exists, miracles are possible. It's the bottom line. If God exists, miracles are possible. If Genesis 1, chapter 1, if Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 is true, then miracles are possible, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a miracle. God created everything we know from nothing. If, that tr if that's true, if God exists, then, then miracles exist. If God created everything we know from nothing, God can do anything. The, the irony is, and, and I would say this, if, you're a, if you believe in God as a creator, if you're a Christian, then you believe in God and creation then is a miracle because God took nothing and created everything. But I would say this, if you have an atheistic worldview, you believe in a bigger miracle. Because you believe nothing took nothing and made everything. That's a bigger miracle. That's why unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Right? Because it just doesn't make sense. So here's what I would say, leveling the playing field, whether anyone's acknowledged it or not, everyone believes in at least one miracle. Because whether you believe God created the earth or nothing created the earth, <laughs> that is a miracle. Now there are two arguments, well it should say, most arguments against miracles have their foundation or basis in two arguments from two philosophers, one 17th century and one 18th century. The... Um, the philosopher in this, and, and by the way, it's pretty easy if, I shouldn't say easy because some people don't, both of their arguments kind of implode and fall in on themselves if, if you understand them. Um, and, and so here's what I mean. They're kind of both based in presuppositions, kind of like Darwinism. It presupposes something and then does some stuff and says, see, there, that's what it is. 
So you understand that, sir? In other words, to, to, you know, if someone says, well, we'll take one of these arguments because they're both kind of circular. Um, so the first guy, um, his, his name is Benedict Spinoza. He was a Dutch philosopher in the 17, 1600s, so 17th century. Um, and what he said is um, natural laws are, are immutable, and since miracles v- violate natural law, there's no miracle. But the problem is, he started it this way. Miracles supersede or violate natural law. Natural law is immutable. Therefore, if a, if a miracle violates natural law, it's not a miracle. So he properly defines miracle, but then penalizes it. But he defined it based on what he didn't want it to do. Does that make sense? The, the problem with the argument is, it presupposes that someone has said natural law is immutable. Meaning you can't change natural law or you can't override or supersede it. I mean, just to give an analogy, because there are ways you actually can. Everybody understand gravity, right? So based on gravity, if I let go of this, it's going to fall. But you know why it's not falling right now? I've overcome gravity. Do you see that? Gravity, oh, overcome it. Gravity, oh, look at that. Praise the Lord. So the truth of the matter is, who said natural law couldn't be superseded or violated? It's kind of the, it give you an analogy. What he was saying essentially is um, that there's, let's just say there's a shoebox and there's a creation in it and it's all wound up and it's running, right? And then someone puts the top on the shoebox and says, there is the world in creation and it runs based on these form natural laws and they can't be changed and we just watch them run. Okay. But let's say that there was a creator that made that creation and he put in that shoebox and he created a creation that runs, but he left the top open and he watches over it. And if at any time he wants to, he can just stick his finger in there and manipulate it because he's actually the creator and he made the natural laws. And if he made the natural laws, he can override the natural laws anytime he wants to because he is greater than the laws he created. You see what I'm saying? So what Spinoza was saying is essentially, and here's kind of the fallacy, um, that, that natural law is immutable, therefore miracles can't happen, but no one said, who said natural, who said that, right? We just made it up because it validated. So what he actually said is there aren't any miracles. Well, why aren't there any miracles? Because miracles supersede natural law, and natural law can't be superseded or changed. But no one said that, and no one proved that. Do you see what I'm saying? The, the second guy is David Hume. A lot of people go back to this argument. What David Hume said is miracles don't exist because there is no evidence of miracles existing. And since there's no evidence of miracles existing, miracles don't exist. Do you see the circle? Now, he didn't say it that way, but that you read his whole entire argument. That's exactly what he said. Here's the interesting thing about David Hume. He was a 17th, I'm sorry, 18th century Dutch uh, philosopher. Um, here, here's what's interesting, too. Again, he's starting with a presupposition. He's starting with what he wants to happen. The interesting thing is, in his lifetime, has anyone heard of Blaise Pascal? 
Blaise Pascal, right? He was an 18th century figure. In fact, has anyone ever used a computer? Most people say the computer goes back to him, okay? His niece had an eye condition that was pretty grotesque in that she had this growth on her eye that stuff came out of because I know I don't want to ruin your lunch, right? And it had an odor, and everybody could see it, smell it. You understand what I'm saying? She was instantly and miraculously healed, and people watched it happen. And they documented it. All the eyewitnesses documented it. In fact, the queen got involved, and she had her investigators document this miracle because it's so insane, right? They took the documentation to David Hume and said, look, this is the, the, the best documentation we've ever seen around a miracle. I mean, this has been documented by all these people, eyewitnesses. And he said, I agree. Concerning the idea of a miracle, this is the best documentation I've ever seen. But since miracles don't exist, and this documentation is this good, and the miracle didn't happen, then any miracle with less documentation obviously didn't happen. There are no miracles. Do you see the problem with David Hume? All right, so that is, most people that have believed that today, they either say natural law can't be violated or there's just not really evidence of miracles. That, that's the point. Um, but here's what C.S. Lewis said. If God exists, there, there must be miracles. The question is, does God exist? Now, I don't want to walk you through this. This is apologetics. But I think every Christian should understand the cosmological argument for God, the teleological argument for God, and the moral argument for God. And, and the reason is, is because we live in a culture that argues against God all the time. But those are three things that, that science, no one has an answer for. There are three things best answered by God. And there is no other second theory. Now, you can say there's no God, but they don't have a good theory. You understand what I'm saying? The cosmological argument just means this, that essentially everything that we know had a beginning. And whatever, whatever began it, Something had to begin it, and that whatever began it couldn't have been made of what it was began and created out of. Okay, that was very confusing. Let me say it this way. It's essentially, and this is the phrase you'll hear, uncaused first cause. Even atheist scientists, most scientists now believe and will say that the universe had a beginning. Something began it. At the beginning, they'll say time, space, and matter is what began. In other words, they all had to come into existence simultaneously, right? You can't have matter if you don't have a place to put it and you don't know what time to put it. Does that make sense? So time, space, and matter all came into existence at the same time. Whatever caused time, space, and matter to come into existence had to be timeless, spaceless, immaterial, powerful, personal, and intelligent. Now, what does that sound like a description of? God. What else meets that description? Matter couldn't create matter. Something that was in time couldn't create time. Something that was in space couldn't create space. So time, space, and matter all came into By the way, atheists don't disagree with this. The responsible ones, time, space, and matter, existed at the same time. So whatever caused time, space, and matter to exist had to be timeless, spaceless, immaterial, and powerful, and intelligent, 
and technically personal. Had to be able to make a decision, had to be smart enough to make the right decision, had to be powerful enough to make that decision and to carry that decision out. And then it could not be in time, it could not be in space, and it could not be of matter. Are you with me? That's kind of, all right, teleological argument is just that of fine-tuning or design, meaning that when you study, as they study the, not just the earth, the universe, they study the universe, it is so finely tuned that it, it, pro, it that it, well, it's so finely tuned, an accident couldn't explain it. Here's what I mean by that. When you look at the expansion rate of the universe, or you look at the Look at gravity on the earth or the expansion rate of the universe or anything in between. Like if the universe slowed down just a little bit, we, we don't exist. And by a little bit, I mean like a fra- such a small fraction exists only in theory because we don't have names for those numbers. Like if, if Saturn moved, if Jupiter moves, like if Saturn doesn't have rings, we don't exist. Like, I mean, there's just too many things as you walk all the way through. Like if the earth slowed down, sped up, tilted a little more, moved a little closer to the sun, if the moon moved a little bit, any of those, and by a little bit, I mean a fraction so small we don't have a number for it. If any of that happened, we're gone, right? So the chance of that being an accident, come on. And then now, oh, my greatest theory, and you'll like this one if you like Marvel, they now have a multiverse theory. That there is a multi, because now they can't, think about this, they can't come up with an explanation because they can't say it was intelligently designed by a creator. They have to say somehow it came into existence and it was just perfect for life to exist here on earth. So now what they've decided is, well, there, there's a multiverse and, and that this is actually happening all different places, but their theory is, but there's a multiverse generator And it's still like, yes, and who created that? How did you get a multiverse generator? And they have no, anyways, just if you like science, you can go study it, it's fun. All right, so cosmological, teleological, and then the moral argument very simply is when people say, is there, you know, if, there, if your God's good, why is there evil, or there's evil in the world? Here's the bottom line. If there's evil, then there's good. If there's good and evil, I need a way to tell the difference between good and evil, meaning I need a moral standard. If there's a moral standard that everyone agrees on and has to abide by, then that moral standard could not come from a human, right? So this is the argument of objective morality, which no person with an atheistic worldview can explain objective morality. It is fun to watch them try because they say, well, as humans, we're all supposed to be good. Who said good? How did you know what was good? Well, as humans, we're, we're not supposed to be bad. What's bad? Who said it was bad? Well, we all agreed. Where was the meeting? I don't remember the meeting. Stalin apparently was not at the meeting. Hitler failed to attend the meeting. Jeffrey Dahmer was out sick that day. Like there are people that didn't think what they were doing while the rest of us would judge it highly immoral. They did not think it was immoral. And if I said we should take any child out in this parking lot and torture them, everyone, atheist, theist, doesn't matter, everyone with any sense of conscience would say, that's wrong. But where does a conscience come from? An atheist can't explain it. Because God wrote his law on our... It's 
where conscience comes from. Anyways, it's a moral argument. So the point, the, here's, here's the idea then. If there is a God, and there is one, miracles are possible. But I want to go a step farther. I want to ask this question. Are miracles probable? They're possible, but are they probable? So now, now we got to talk about, <laughs> y'all are going to love this, <laughs> cessationism and continuationism. Isn't it great to be in God's house? Somebody's like, Ethel, I thought he'd just talk about Noah's Ark or something today. Dear God. Here's the, the reality. Can I tell you something? God called us to make disciples, not church attenders. And I don't need you to go out into this world, and you're going to be encountered with someone. Here's what I know, because it's happened to me, and it, it could happen to me tomorrow. There are people that know more about the Bible than I do, obviously. There are atheists that probably know more about the Bible than I do, because they've studied it to pick it apart. And the Bible says we need to be able to give answer for our faith. And to me, God, when we start pathway, he said, I want you to make disciples. So that's all I care about, making disciples, not church tenders. Are you with me? And so with that, I want to give you a lot where it's kind of like school's in session. Let's figure it out together, and then let's go live it, and let's give answer to it where we need to. When you talk about cessationism, cessationism is the belief. Now, these are well, many well-meaning Christians. They are Christian people, Christian pastors, Christian people. Um, so it's, it's not like a holy war. We're not mad at cessationists. We just need to understand what they believe versus what continuationists believe. Cessationists believe that as the, the apostles, that essentially miracles, signs, wonders, healing, all that kind of stuff passed away with the apostles. That those were special gifts and abilities given to the apostles for that time to give credibility to their message and as soon as we had the word of God, we no longer needed miracles, right? Now, I could make a philosophical argument about the nature of God. If miracles, aren't they merciful? Aren't they good? Aren't they loving? Like I could, I could argue it that way. But first, let me explain what cessationists kind of where they, you need to understand where they're coming from. Um, at least I think you do. So, so they pull several scriptures, and, and they build their case. 2 Timothy 4 is one where Paul left Trophius and Miletus. Uh, Miletus was a place. Trophius was a person. Paul left Trophius in Miletus sick. And he says, I left Trophius in Miletus sick. And they say, see, Paul's authority and power to do miracles was fading away because if this was his friend, why didn't he heal him? Well, again, we're start, if you start with a presupposition and then go to the Bible, you mess up. So we don't know. Paul may have, what we know is Paul left him sick. It doesn't say he didn't get better, and it doesn't say God, but Paul didn't pray for him. Are you with me? So I'm just saying we're starting again, because I could just as easily say, oh, that's awesome. Paul probably, probably went to Miletus to pray for him, and he raised him up from the dead or something. You know what I mean? I could read in, but instead, let's just say the verse says this, but we don't know, because I don't have a verse that says what cessationists believe, I have pieces of verses. Philippians 2, um, Paul said that uh, Epaphroditus almost died, but God had mercy on him. And they say, well, see there, that's another friend of Paul's, and he almost died. But what it doesn't say is Paul, maybe God had mercy on him, meant that Paul prayed for him and raised him up. It's just as good a theory as any. 
You see what I'm saying? Because I don't have anything other. Uh, another verse, Hebrews 2, they said God testified to the gospel using signs. And because the word in the Greek testified is past tense, just like testified is past tense, because the word past tense, that it points to the fact that God stopped testifying with signs. But again, that's not what the verse says. The verse is talking about what we saw, what we experienced. So the, the, the writer of Hebrews is not writing about what God is going to do. He's not prophesying. He's saying what God did. So contextually, I think this one falls apart. And one of the big verses that, that cessationists use, 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Now, what's going on verse 13, 8? Most of you know that's the, that's the love chapter, right? We read it at the weddings, right? <laughs> chapter 12 is gifts of the Spirit because the Corinthians were running around crazy, doing all types of silly stuff in the name of God. And Paul's like, we've got to help you all out. Some of it was legitimate. It was the gifts of the Spirit. But they were having church services where everybody's just screaming in tongues, um, where all types of things are happening. By the way, in prayer, last Monday, we had several people receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit. I just want to put that in there. Amen. And so, yeah, you can celebrate that. That's fine. Sometimes I forget what you're supposed to celebrate. But <laughs> Jana's good at celebrating anything. She'd be like, yay! You know, she's like a little cheerleader. Yay! I'm like, hey, you know what? Somebody's leg grew back. All right, next thing. Um, so I'm just saying, anyways, um, but, but he's talking about the, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, tongues, gifts, all those things. Verse 13, the context is still the same, gifts of the Spirit, but he's making a point about love being the motive and the basis for operating gifts. That's why he said, hey, if you don't love, you're just a sounding symbol, essentially. Like prophesying without love is hurtful sometimes, Right. So he's saying, let love be the motive. Let love be the basis. That's the context. Then in, in, then in chapter 14, he goes on to how they operate in gifts in, in the church. The point is, in the middle of this, in thirteen, chapter 13, verses 8 you know, through like 12, I'm just going to read verse 8 through 10, but it says, Love never fails, for, whatever, for wherever there are prophecies, they fail. Wherever there are tongues, they cease. Wherever there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. I don't really have time to take this apart and put it back together. And I've got a lot of things that I can talk about here. But let me explain what, where they're coming from. When they say, when that which is perfect has come, then these other things, tongues, prophecy, all that will pass away. The question is, what did Paul mean by perfect? Well, they're saying the word of God is perfect, right? And it's true. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. I mean, that is true. Can't get around that. But perfect is also used as maturity. Perfect is also used as talking about Jesus. Perfect is also used or being perfected, talking about believers being sanctified or becoming more Christ-like. So there's a lot of usages for perfect that are not just the perfect law of the Lord or the law of the Lord's perfect reviving the soul. They, they tried, or I should say, they cross-referenced this with James where James says, you know, looking, be, be hearers and be doers of the word, not hearers, looking into this perfect law of liberty as in a mirror, okay? And, and, and they say, see, here it is, perfect. But the problem is it doesn't work theologically. James, perfect law of liberty is not the Bible, it's grace. So it's an attribute or concept, not the word of God. And most people theologically would not argue with that. Um, then the other thing that kind of falls in on itself is, when it comes to James, we see in a mirror clearly, 1 Corinthians said the mirror is fading away because that which is perfect is coming. And so the mirrors aren't the same anymore. 
One of them's fading away and one of them's making us see clearly. And we could argue, you know, a lot, a lot of different things from that. Then it says, Paul talks about now we know in part, you know, one day we'll know in full. Um, well, and then he goes on in verse 11 and 12 to talk about being face to face. And when I was a child, I thought as a child and he talks about growing up. So he almost honestly, if you read it verbatim, the implication, if you believe perfect is the word of God, you believe modern Christians are more mature than first century Christians, because that's what he says. If that's, that the Bible would make us more mature than them. And I don't know about you, I've been a pastor a while, and I, I kind of have some questions about that idea. But to me, here's one of the arguments that he's making, is that when that which is perfect has come, we're going to see it face to face, and we're going to be as we should, right? Well, if perfect is the Word of God, it's kind of hard to make that make sense. But if perfect is Jesus, look at what John says, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it's not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, the perfect one, and I put in perfect one for emphasis, we will be like him for we will see him as he is. See, to me, that's a beautiful cross-reference because it's the same thing. The other idea, theologically, you know, if you study the Bible scripturally, however you say that, but anyways, Paul never would introduce a new topic without explaining it. So that would have been the first introduction of what we know as the canonization of Scripture. Because remember, the New Testament church, they didn't know they were writing Scripture completely. They didn't know they were writing a Bible. Some of them did have, uh, Paul even had an understanding he was writing something holy. Um, but they didn't know the, the inscripturation process. They didn't know the New Testament was going to be produced, you know, in, in the late 300s. I mean, they had a working New Testament in the early 100s, but for a lot of reasons persecution, etc. We don't have the full canonization of the New Testament until like the uh, Carthage in like three was it, 390 something, whatever it is. Anyways, purpose being if Paul was introducing a new concept and saying perfect is actually scripture, he would have had to explain it because they wouldn't have known what it meant. And because there's no explanation. Also, you could say if, if he says prophecies ceasing and tongues are ceasing and prophecies fading away and knowledge is vanishing and we live in an information age, then you got to beg the question, wait a second, knowledge didn't stop. But what we know is once we know Jesus, we don't need spiritual gifts and we don't need knowledge and we don't need prophecy and we don't need tongues once we see Jesus face to face. So it just makes more sense. The, the idea, the point is, I just want you to understand there's an argument out there that's kind of what it's based in, but there's a lot of reasons why it just kind of falls in on itself. So now we're getting to continua continuationism. And I know we're almost out of time, but I want to read a verse and, and tell you what I think the Lord's speaking, and then I'll support it, and then we'll be done. It'll take me just a few minutes. John 14, 12. Now, this verse in and of itself does not prove continuationism, meaning that miracles continue, signs and wonders continue, the working of the Holy Spirit continues, etc., in that fashion with dynamic gifts. But I want to show you something because John 14, 12 says, Most assuredly, I say to you, who believes in me, the works that I do. Now, by, by the way, works we know means miracles, signs, and wonders. And we know that from Jesus' writings, and not Jesus' writings, but from Jesus' verbiage in the Gospels. When he uses works, he's not talking about planting corn. Are you with me? He said, talked about working the works of God. We must work while it's day, right? I mean, this, this is something else, right? So, so we know what works means. 
He said, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these will he do, because I go to the Father. Now, there's a lot of people that have, have disqualified this verse because they say, well, Jesus walked on water, turned water into wine, raised the dead. I don't see any of those things, so obviously we're not doing greater works. I, in my opinion, what he's actually saying, works is not, not about quality, it's about quantity. I think that's actually what he's saying. What he's saying, now here's, here's the key to the verse, because I go to the Father. Now, what happens when he goes to the Father? He sends the Holy Spirit. He's, in fact, he says, better that I go away because if I don't go, the comforter can't come. So here's what he's looking at 12 guys. Think about this. And he's saying, I'm one guy and I'm doing miracles. But when the Holy Spirit comes on you, it'll be like 12 of me doing miracles. It will be greater in quantity. Same types of miracles. And we know the, the apostles did similar things to Jesus. We don't know of water into wine or walking on water. We know Peter did uh, for a little bit. But, but still, we know they cast out demons and, I mean, raise the dead and all kinds of stuff, right? My point is this. I want to make this point. We said if there is a God, then miracles are possible. Jesus said if I go to the Father, meaning the Holy Spirit comes, you're going to do greater miracles. In 1 Corinthians 12, one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is the working of miracles. Here's what I want to say. If God exists, miracles are possible. If the Holy Spirit exists, miracles are probable. If God exists, they're possible. That's true. But if Jesus sent the Holy Spirit and His gifts are working of miracles and prophecy and tongues... Right? And if we've received the Holy Spirit, then now not only are miracles possible, but I believe they're probable. I believe, in other words, there should be a faith and an expectation that God does the impossible. He's able to do the impossible in my life. It's okay to believe God to do the impossible. In fact, I, I should start with believing God to do the impossible. Not taking out doctors, not taking out medicine. Thank God for them, right? They, there is a place and they are from God. But I'm saying if God does miracles and he sent the Holy Spirit just like we celebrated at Pentecost a few weeks ago and the Holy Spirit has come and part of his working and part of his gifting is tongues and prophecy and miracles and words of wisdom, then not only are miracles possible, but miracles are probable. Now, there's a lot that I could say. I just, I just want to say this because I got like three minutes. A lot of cessationists, some of which are pastors, will argue that there is no prophecy, there is, you know, there's no power gifts, or there's no gifts of the Spirit. The interesting thing is pastors are a gift, according to Ephesians 4, and it's included in the same sentence as prophets and apostles and evangelists who typically were gifted to work miracles. So it's interesting to me as a cessationist, it's like, well, I believe half of the sentence faded away. I believe 60% faded away. Pastors and teachers are okay, but we don't have evangelists, we don't have prophets, and we don't have apostles. See, it doesn't, doesn't make sense. I, I want to take you to Mark's gospel. This is the Great Commission in Mark, and I want to address something because you need, this is something you need to understand, and then, and then I promise I'll, I'll just be done, right? 
Mark, this is the Great Commission according to Mark, um, who we know received his information directly from Peter, because Mark was not an apostle. He has information from Peter. He said, and he said to them, go, this is in red, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, and he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Now, we don't have a problem with that. That's pretty much like Matthew's, what's this, verse 17, and these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. If they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. Now, here's why I want to read this. If you have, if you have, well, several versions, but I know the NIV does it. The NIV at verse 8, and by the way, this is not, a, I'm against the NIV. I think what they've done is responsible, but I want to explain it. The NIV will, after verse 8, and other translations do it too, but after verse 8, they'll say uh, this is essentially the short ending of the book of Mark. And the reason is because there's a short ending and a long ending. Some, uh, the debate, if you will, is about verses 9 through 20. And that's why when a lot of people read the Great Commission, those type of things, they use Matthew and they don't use Mark. And a lot of times Mark is not given the same credibility or credence as Matthew and it, and it also keeps it easier to keep some of the things in Mark that are a little bit controversial, like new tongues and casting out demons and serpents and healing the sick and all that. We can kind of keep this over here. But I want you to understand why it's done that way. The debate was, should it have been included in Scripture? And the reason, the reason that it was debated is because it is true in the earliest manuscripts which would have been in the early 300s, um, it was not put in those manuscripts. It was not put in those. So the, the original first manuscripts left it out. And because it was left out in that, that's why it's traditionally like, well, we're not sure if it belongs, right? So when you have the Codex uh, Sinaiticus and the Codex uh, Vatican, Vaticanus, um, those leave it out. And so that's why people say it shouldn't have been put in. The question is, well, why was it put in? Well, the reason it was put in is because, now you need to remember, we can recreate the New Testament with sources outside of Scripture within three to four words because it was so widely talked about, quoted, cited, right, written about. So you can rebuild the New Testament without the Bible. Are you, you understand what I'm saying? just through quotations. With that, the early church fathers, four of which were uh, Arrhenius, Justin the Martyr, uh, Tatian, and um, Hippolytus. So with that, th those four church fathers, and there were more, but those are four that were first century guys. They all quoted and cited from Mark chapter 9 through 20. I'm sorry, Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. In other words, the reason it was originally taken out or left out of the Bible is because some of the early manuscripts did not have those verses. They left it at verse 8 where the women come to the tomb and then they leave in awe and kind of run off. 
The reason it was put back in is because when they started looking at the writings of the church fathers, some of which would have been alive probably as children during the days of Christ, they started seeing that those early church fathers were preaching and quoting and talking about verses 9 through 20. And because those early church fathers were citing Mark's gospel verses 9 through 20, and it could be reconstructed essentially with their writings, then they said, hey, this should be included in Scripture. I said all that to say when we're talking about the Great Commission, and we'll probably get to this next week because we've got to be done for today. When we're talking about the Great Commission, we can look at Mark's gospel, I believe, and understand the first century church thought this was the words of God. And they preached it and taught it and cited it and quoted it. And I believe then we're on good standing to say part of this great commission is going to all the world and preach the gospel, but it's also healed, sick, cleansed, leper, raised the dead, cast out demons. And I know people are like, are we going to start doing that? Listen, you know me. I'm not into hype and emotionalism or anything crazy. I'm just making a point for if God is God. Miracles are possible. And if God has anointed us by the Holy Spirit, then miracles can be probable and should be probable. And we, we are on good doctrinal, apologetic, and intellectual ground. And I've covered all those in this one message. That's why it took so long. But whether you want doctrine, whether you want apologetics, or whether you just want intellectual, whatever it is, we are on good ground believing God for miracles. Amen. Amen. I want to give you one more thing. I told you I was done, but I got to give you this. When you look at church history, because remember, cessationists say miracles would have stopped in the second or third, maybe fourth century, but at least second, third, fourth century, no more miracles. When you look at church history, every time there's a move of God, you see miracles. The Great Awakening with Jonathan Edwards, you have eyewitness testimony of miracles. The British Great Awakening with Charles Wesley, by the way, who helped start the Methodist movement, Charles Wesley. He actually, Charles Wesley resurrected a dead person. Most people don't know that. That's Second Great Awakening. I'm sorry, that's the British Great Awakening. Second Great Awakening was Charles Finney. There were miracles and signs and wonders. The Welsh Revival, Evan Roberts, miracles, signs and wonders. Azusa Street Revival, William Seymour, miracles, signs and wonders. In fact, one of theirs, it was documented, a person's arm grew back. Could you imagine that? Like, I don't believe miracles. Everybody got saved that day. Uh, some of these have been more scrutinized because they were more recent, but the Toronto Blessing, there are miracles and signs and wonders. The Pensacola Outpouring, which I went to, miracles and signs and wonders. And then, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, there was another revival in Mobile Bay. It's called the Bay Revival or the Bay of the Holy Spirit Revival. It was led by the pastor of the Pensacola Outpouring. Um, but there were miracles, signs, and wonders, one of which you can watch on YouTube if you want to. Uh, Delia Knox was a pastor's wife who was hurt in an accident and paralyzed from the waist down for 20 or 22 years. And they actually have it on video in one of the services. They prayed for her, and she got out of the wheelchair. She had not been able to feel any sensations. She had muscle atrophy. Everything was just kind of, you know, stuck. You know how that works. And they, she actually gets out of the wheelchair. Now, at first, she's walking with help, but she's actually picking her leg up. It just looks like someone that probably hadn't walked in, like, 20 years. You understand what I'm saying? But if you find the right video, she comes back to share her testimony, and she walks out just like me. 
and she's still walking to this day. And you can see it, and it's a miracle. So I'm just saying, if you, if <laughs> going back to Hume and Spinoza, if you need, if you, if you need to see a miracle, you can YouTube it. Right, <laughs> right. Here's what I'm saying. Here's what I'm saying. I'll give. Oh, one more thing. Okay, this is good. <laughs> I promise I'm done. A 2006 Pew Forum survey in 10 countries, not the West, but in 10 countries. Uh, they surveyed Pentecostal Charismatics in 10 countries. And at the conclusion of that survey, they had found 200 million people that either claimed to have experienced or witnessed a miracle. 200 million. That was only in 10 countries. In the same country, they did a survey, non-Pentecostal, non-Charismatic, 39% said they had either experienced or seen a miracle. As far as in the West, a 2008 Pew Forum survey in America, 34% of Americans, 34% of Americans in 2008 said they'd either experienced or seen a miracle. I didn't get to tell you all my miracle stories, did I? This is, this is the danger of preaching three times. It was supposed to be in the beginning. I'll give you two real quick. Somebody's like, Ethel, this is never going to end, is it? <laughs> um, one from my son who's, who's here, my oldest son, Luke, when he was about five or so, uh, his, what we now know, I was out of town, it was a conference, my parents called, they, my son was staying with them, my kids were staying with them, and uh, he was in excruciating pain, couldn't move his leg, and so anyways, went to the, called the doctor, got him to the doctor. The doctor examines him. He said, I know what's happened. And he said his hip has come out of place. It's rare, but it happens. Um, he said, the bad thing is there's only one way to put it back in place, and that's surgery. So we need to get him scheduled for surgery. It's the only way to get, get this, and we'll give him something for pain. I mean, he's screaming. It's hard when you're on the phone and you try and talk to your dad and you hear your son, you know, your five-year-old screaming. Well, they, they had him on the x-ray table. Of course, my parents were there. They're praying. We're praying. Everybody's praying. And on the x-ray table, God put his hip back in socket. You say, are you sure it's a miracle? Yes. How do you know? Because the doctor said so. Because the doctor said, this is the hands of the great physician. Because no doctor can do that. One other one, I was 20... 22 years old, single. Uh, I'd just taken a full-time staff position, which is great. It's my first full-time position, which means that I actually got paid to be a pastor because, you know, working through college. Anyways, that's a pastor joke. Anyways, all right. So um, I was on call on Christmas Day because I was the one without a family. <laughs> and so, um, But I got a call. I'll never forget a lady in our church. Her name was Birdie. She's gone on to be with Jesus now. Sweet, sweet lady. And Birdie called, and I got the call, and she said, Pastor, can you come to the hospital? It's urgent. Essentially what has happened is her two-year-old, a little over two, uh, grandson had a seizure and stopped breathing. And she said, we're at the ER. So I said, I'm on my way. I got in the truck and headed to the hospital. They had called for the helicopter. The helicopter's inbound, um, and they're going to take him to, to Children's. And so I get to the hospital, and I tell them who I am, and a nurse comes and gets me. Usually that's a bad sign. 
if a nurse comes out to get you, that's a bad sign. <laughs> she came out and she said, you're the pastor, say yes, ma'am. She said, uh, they're in, and she said, well, I'm going to take you to them. They're in consultation one or whatever it is. Now, if you're a pastor, you'd never, if it's a consultation room, it's bad. You understand? And so we're on the way, and she said, I said, what's, what's going on? She said, well, he seized up, stopped breathing. Um, she said he was 27 minutes without oxygen. That's how long it took our EMTs to get there. No one there was trained in CPR. Um, she said, uh, do you understand what that means? And I said, yes, because what I know is after six minutes, brain damage sets in, and it's you can't change it after six minutes. Like before six minutes, you got a good chance. But permanent brain damage typically starts about six minutes, and the longer it goes, the more it damages and the, more, the worse it gets. And I'm like, 27 minutes, that's a lot without breathing. So they take me to the consultation room, and the family's all there, and Birdie man the faith of this woman I don't even know why because I'm a 22 year old kid that I'm like Jesus this is my first you know, I'm a pastor it's my first Christmas happy holidays Merry Christmas praise the Lord she said pastor will you come pray for my grandson and of course I luckily I'd been to Bible college and I had no wisdom and a lot of zeal so I'm like praise God alright I, I get to try this you know not really. It's pretty intimidating. We walked back there. Here's this little two-year-old little boy. And he's on every machine, 100%, you know, intubated, 100% oxygen, you know. And, and, uh, I, and I didn't know. They looked at me. And I said, well, let's pray. And the only place I could really get to him was his leg. And so I just put my hands on his leg. I don't remember what I prayed. There was no magic words. There was no, it probably wasn't even a good prayer. We started praying, and, and these alarms went off. And when it went off, I thought, oh, my God, he's dead, like dead, dead. You know, and my eyes opened like this, and a nurse was looking, and then she looked at me, and we're now looking at each other, and I'm trying to figure out, does her look mean what my look means? And I looked at her and said, what's going on? And she said, he just started breathing. And these machines are telling us he's breathing on his own. And, and uh, she said, but I'm not, I can't dial it back. She didn't have the orders to do that. So she said, you can keep praying, but it's just going to keep going off. And I said, okay. <laughs> Pray more. Helicopter got there. They load him up. I got a call about an hour later from Birdie, the grandmother. And she said, Pastor Mario, I want to let you know that when they got, she called his name out of, the, out of the helicopter and got him in the hospital. He sat up and said he wanted to go home and play with his toys. And she said, in fact, they, they're not even going to keep him overnight. They've got a few more tests, and as long as he passes those, and he did, and they came home, and God did a miracle. So why do I believe miracles? I've seen them. And I understand I've seen situations where I didn't see it happen the way I felt like I wanted it to happen. But this is what I believe. If God exists, miracles are possible. And if God sent the Holy Spirit, miracles are probable. Amen. Can you give Jesus praise today? Okay, I'm really done, y'all. Stand up. Stand up and... Uh, I'm sorry it took so long.
I'm going to ask our prayer team to come. And uh, we always want to pray for anyone who needs prayer. We want to pray for you for anything when we conclude service here in just a minute. And today, if, if you're believing God for a miracle, we want to pray with you. Um, and if you're just trying to trust God for a miracle, we want to pray with you. And if you need a relationship with God, we want to pray with you. You know, anything, we want to pray. Well, let's just bow our heads just for a moment. And I want us just to pray. And I want us to pray and, and just really tell God, you know, let's just do this. Lord, what are you speaking to me? Would you all just pray that just for a minute? God, what are you speaking to me today? Because I believe right now God maybe is healing some people whose hearts were hurt and affected by things that didn't happen the way you hoped they would. And I believe the loving grace of the Father heals that, encourages. And he kind of kind of puts his hand out and says, but I want you to trust me again. I want you to trust me again. Lord, help us trust beyond our experience. And help us trust beyond how we feel. <laughs> help us to trust, God, when we've been disappointed or scared. God, today we're just answering the question, do you still do miracles? And God, we have to really, I believe, answer that in the affirmative that you do still do miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit who is with us and in us. You do miracles. And God, today we, we, can't, we can't override that with past experience or feelings or thoughts. We just have to take you at your word. And God, as a church, I think that's what we're saying. Maybe it is scary for some people. Maybe it's intimidating for some. God, even places in me are just a little like, Lord, it's not hard to trust you, but I don't want to I don't I, I see the broken hearts and the hurts. And, you know, so just being real, God, I want to trust you, and I believe you're speaking it. But do, I do understand the struggle of frail human flesh. But God, I believe you didn't call us to determine the results. You called us to have faith. We'll have faith and leave the results to you. And so, God, I just pray today, help us to believe you, the miracle-working, almighty creator of heaven and earth. And, God, today I pray where there are those in this room who need a miracle watching online. God, I pray for that miracle for that healing, for that deliverance, for that recreation, that renewing, that transformation, that change. God, we believe in the miracle working power of Almighty God. And so, Lord, we're just trusting you. Do what only you can do. And you said all things are possible to him who God, today, that's our part, to believe. And we believe you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Come on, can you give Jesus praise today? He is so good. God is so good.